I very much always identified more with like my masculine energy, especially when I was at an all girls school. Cause I was always like, okay, I guess I'll be the dude in the play. Cause everyone else was like a thin white waif of a woman. Yeah. And I was like, I identified as the Mucinex man. I was like, all right, ladies, here we are. Hello and welcome to Cleopatra. I'm Lynn Molly. And I'm Christy Bana, and this is a podcast where two Middle Eastern comedy queens go on an expedition to dig up the funny from the first generation experience. That is a mouthful. <laughs> but you got it. Today, our special guest is none other than your co-host, Christy Bana. I'm honored to be in the hot seat this time. Jump right into it. Let's do the Christy Bana story. Let's go, let's go backwards in time and let's say your parents, where did they come from? How did they come together? Sure. My parents were born in Cairo, Egypt. Heard of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> they met, I guess, at, technically at a, at weddings. Um, at multiple weddings? Yeah. Like, you know. The community. wedding circuit. Yeah, the wedding circuit. Yeah. And they got engaged pretty shortly after in like 1973. Um, then my dad actually moved to america to westchester new york oh wow he uh uh, got a special visa because there was like a doctor's shortage in america and he moved here in 1973 right after they got engaged and my mom stayed in egypt wow yeah for two years you know if he was a like man doing that now he'd be like i have to be (laughs) non-monogamous Yes, absolutely. And so began the polyamorous love story. My mom and my dad were in a polycule. Shortly after my parents got engaged, my dad moved to America in 1973, Westchester, to be a surgeon and was working. I think he did a residency and he worked at a hospital in Brownsville, New York, which is the birthplace of Mike Tyson. Oh, wow. Yes. And my dad often invoked that fact to explain what a dodgy place Brownsville was. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure people in Egypt were like, who's Mike Tyson? Right. It's, yeah. you know, but my, my dad was like the head of a surgery ward in Egypt. And then he said that when he had moved to Brownsville, New York, New York in the 70s, mind you, which was like notoriously the worst crime, et cetera, et cetera. And he was like, I had never seen a wound, like a gunshot wound in my whole life until I moved to New York. You know, like <laughs> he was very much like this is a whole nother level of doctoring, I guess. Yeah. And once you come to America, you got to be ready for gun wounds, I right. guess. Yeah. yeah. Just trial by fire. So, yeah, my dad lived in New York for a couple years and he and my mom were long distance wow. engaged. Yeah. Did which they is, write romantic letters? Did you find them in a desk somewhere? I didn't find them, but my mom did say that they communicated mostly through letters. Uh. And uh, she's also said that because long distance calling in the 70s was still, you know, insanely difficult you would have to like go to a location and reserve and then say I'd like to make a phone call and they'd set up the wire and it would you know you'd only get to talk for a few minutes and I cannot imagine like with the leap of faith that my mom took to like trust a man going across the world right yeah So after their two-year-long engagement... What um, was she doing at this time? Was she living by herself or with her family? Oh, you know, just finishing up high school. 
Oh. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so my mom, I guess they got engaged when she was 18. Wow. Yeah, and then they got married in Los Angeles when uh, my mom was 20. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, nuts. So uh, around 1975, my dad moved to Los Angeles. Um, I believe he was looking for another residency, and it was between Alabama and Oof. California. Oof, girl, you got lucky. I got so lucky. Yeah. And my dad was uh, a resident at UCLA. Oh, wow. And did uh, surgery and then changed from general surgery to uh, ear, nose, and throat, uh, ENT. Then he became a plastic surgeon. I mean, that's which just like I famously of did not avail myself of. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. How did your mom feel when she got here? My impression is that she had a really tough time because yeah. she went to a French school. So did my mom. I know. Yeah. We both had so many similarities and a French Catholic school taught by nuns. Yep. It only dawned on me much later that I was like, wait, a French Catholic school smells like colonialism. Yeah, I know. <laughs> when I was younger, I was like, cool, French. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We've already established the Francophile part of you is like, yeah. maybe a little bit of colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being colonized by the French, then perfect. Lovers. Uh, so yeah, my mom had a hard time because she was basically learning English. Just oh, wow. on the job, on the fly. Wow. And it was difficult. And she went to... Um, and she was learning L.A. English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she. it took a while for her to learn the vocal fry dialect of Los oh, Angeles. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. It's very nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> she also did say, she was like, it was very hard to learn because uh, they swallow their words. <laughs> yeah, as a word swallower, I can <laughs> relate to that. I'm more of a spitter. I spit oh, okay, out my well, words, yeah. Then um, I just swallow them. <laughs> That's why we're friends. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The yin and the yang. Of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think it was a pretty difficult, isolating yeah. time. But And there also like wasn't as robust of a ch like Egyptian Coptic community Absolutely. here. Um, I'd be shocked. Is there a robust Egyptian Coptic community now? Yes. Wow. Oh, very, cool. very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually, boring, boring alert, I did a, an ethnographic <laughs> study of the Coptic community in Los Angeles for my senior thesis. How many stand-up comedians do you think can say that? Just you. <laughs> one half. <laughs> I can barely say it, yeah. But I was, like, very into figuring out, like, what the Coptic community was. Like, there were, like, 50 families in the late 50s, early 60s, and it was mostly, like, bachelors and people, like, coming, like, people like my dad and um, his friends. And now there's just, like, you know, dozens and dozens of Coptic churches within, like, an 100-mile radius cool. of... Yeah, it's pretty extensive. Did people don't really realize. of your dad and mom's family come out here because they came out here? Yes. I think my my dad's sister was already here, and they actually settled in Los Feliz. They oh. were the original hipsters. Wow. Uh, <laughs> we have more family. Most of my dad's family is in America now, but the majority of my mom's family is all, still in Egypt right now. So Okay. So what was your mom doing while your dad was working when she was in America, was she working or was she? She I went to like a college in Northridge. Okay, yep, yeah, that's the that's <laughs> exactly the official name. 
Northridge College. It must have been so <laughs> strange to be like an Egyptian surgeon's wife with a bunch of co-eds. It was really hard for uh, her. I bet she just went to class and left. I bet she wasn't. Class and church. Yeah. yeah. Wow. CNC. But then, you know, she had my brother and then my sister and then... A few years later, as she said, as I found out only a few years ago, you were a surprise. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't know I was a surprise. <laughs> wow. I hope you carry that energy What everywhere. a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I popped out of a cake. What a, yeah. what a nice way of saying I, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> I was unplanned. Listen, but then there would never be this podcast then and everyone's never, been yeah. clamoring for it. Yeah, and so. everyone knows that th- my life has culminated in this moment. <laughs> One more podcast. <laughs> oh, boy. So, so and what was little Christy like? I was very silly as a child, and I would do impressions of my grandma and of other people, and I was really just into that observational humor. Oh, from a young yeah. age, so yeah. What's the deal with pita bread, you know? Yeah. Do you feel like childhood was a happy time? Oh, wow. Should I be lying down on this Yeah, couch? maybe. Yeah. Uh, was childhood a happy that. time? It depends on the day. It depends <laughs> okay. on whatever core wound okay. I'm digging into <laughs> at the moment. Um, I would say overall, yes. I think uh, eventually, you know, I talk about this a lot in my comedy that, you know, growing up in L.A. is not fun. Of course. You know, especially not in the late 90s, early 2000s with heroin chic and... The all-girls Catholic school that I went to. yeah. But also, it's like, I I can only imagine that growing up now is essentially the same thing. What was your brand as a child? Because you need to have a brand at an early age. Yeah, that's true. That was the first thing I learned growing up in Los Angeles. (laughs) When I was a child, I wanted to be an artist, and I also wanted to be an archaeologist. Oh. So I would dig up rocks from the backyard, much to the chagrin of my parents because I dug holes in the backyard (laughs) like a dog. (laughs) And then I would bring all the rocks to my little shed, like my little plastic Fisher-Price playhouse shed, and I would clean them off with toothbrushes and toothpicks and pretend that I was, and then sort them based on their um, degree of marbleization. Wow. Yeah. Because I was... Uh, super popular. Super cool. Yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of friends. <laughs> sounds like I had a lot of friends. Um, and then I, I was a big music. I was never athletic at all. I just okay, had a yeah, lot of uh, music interests. I took piano lessons, and eventually in high school, I was in the jazz band and the orchestra. And anything notable about high school? A joke that I have in my stand-up is that I had to come out to all my classmates as not Latina, (laughs) and that was after uh, my white teacher handed me a brochure for the Latina Heritage Scholarship Award. I mean, honestly, take it. Actually, don't take it. Absolutely don't take it. (laughs) Don't take up that space. I I was thinking I could have dolezal my way to the top (laughs) before there was a Rachel Dolezal. There could have been me. Colleges, did you know where you wanted to go? My dream school was Berkeley. Okay. And then is that? That's where I went. Oh, look at that. You went to your dream school. I know. That's huge. Mashallah. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big deal. And <laughs> what a stupid. <laughs> so that was a big deal. I mean, getting into your dream college, not everyone does it. I sure didn't. And what was your dream college? Um, I really wanted to go to NYU and I applied for undergrad. I did not get in. And then I applied for grad school, and I did not get in. The world did not want me to live in New York. It really wanted me to go to L.A. I kind of 
love yeah. that for me yeah. personally. <laughs> um, yes. I love it for not living that close to my parents in New Jersey. So fair. Yeah. yeah. I moved to Washington DC after that and interned at a think tank, Middle Eastern policy. Oh, cool. And did stuff with that. And then I went to law school, went back to Berkeley. Funny enough at that time, I wanted to go to Georgetown Law. That was my dream school. And I was on the wait list. Ugh. And then I got into Berkeley and I was like, oh, okay. And Georgetown never emailed me to say that, uh, never actually officially rejected me. So I'm still on the waiting That's list true. towards in, becoming true. America's next top model at Georgetown <laughs> Law. And I cannot wait to hear back. I wonder if I should, should I go again? That makes Let's me do so wild when they can't even respond. I did a copywriting test recently and I um, had to submit four tests. It was a total of four hours to apply for this job. And they didn't even send me a response. Wow. But don't worry, I blew them up on Glassdoor. I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> Big mistake. Huge. <laughs> yeah, she'll come after you. I'm sure whoever's reading it on Glassdoor is like, she's in love with us. Yes. <laughs> Don't worry, I left a very <laughs> thorough Yelp review of Georgetown Law. Good. One star admissions process. What if you get in like tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> well, then it's Sayonara Podcast. I'm out of here. Oh, no. You no, just kidding. Okay. Obviously. I once saw a review for a subway stop. In New York. <laughs> what? I was just looking for the subway stop. Where's subway stop? Yeah, it was like a little dirty in the corners. <laughs> That's kind of the long and the short of it. I then, oh, you know, I just went to law school, became an attorney, and then decided to become a comedian. And yeah, here we, we are gotta, today. I think, I think we got to stop somewhere in there. I feel like something big happened right there. So let's talk about the transition from being a practicing attorney to being a comedian. I I always suspected that there was a part of me that like needed to do something creative and in comedy and I wanted to do it basically my whole life but never really drew the connection until Did a, you grow up watching comedy? Yes. Okay. Very much like I Love Lucy, Saturday Night Live and Late Night with Conan O'Brien were like the three giant, you know, and those were like, Lucy was like when I was like really young and then SNL when I was a little bit older. And then in high school with Conan, I was just obsessed with late night and everything. And I got a bunch of books on like improv. I bought Judy Carter's The Comedy Bible when oh. I was 15. I and was... I also read Truth in Comedy. And When you were 15, so you were really, this yeah. was on the brain. It, and it amazes me that I didn't realize that I like wanted to be a comedian until like few years ago <laughs> also like you lived in LA like you could have gone I out didn't to see things. it as yeah. a viable I mean first of all like we're Middle Eastern we, oh, we yeah. have to achieve but then also I think I just I felt like such an outsider in high school I didn't feel pretty and I didn't feel popular so I felt like my foothold was needed to be academia like, okay well Christy you can't be ugly and stupid so you need to be really really smart and you need to get straight A's and so I got, like, you know, great grades in high school and in college. And that was sort of what I felt like would redeem me is, like, okay. if I can't be popular and pretty, I need to at least be smart. And so I thought I want to preemptively reject L.A. and the industries before. Because I, I actually not even preemptively. I already felt rejected by it because yeah. I felt rejected by the people in my high school, which were very in bedded in the LA industry because it's 
Oh, of course. Yes. Very connected people. um, Lots of daughters of famous, you know, people. I just didn't feel like it was something I could access. I very much relate to that. And I think I felt so much of that. And it really wasn't until I started to see them pushing diversity that I was like, oh, there's a space for someone like me. Because you're right, when we were younger, there just wasn't space in entertainment for people like us. Right. And there were very few like Middle Eastern, you know, people doing it anyway. And I really did see it as like a white male thing. And anyway. I thought if you were a woman, you either had to be like hot, like blonde kind of thing, or you had to be like super like masculine and like carry like a, like a very strong, yeah. hard energy that I just don't. That's funny. Have. So I, I actually did. I very much always identified more with like my masculine energy, especially when I was at an all girls school. Cause I was always like, okay, I guess I'll be the dude in the play. Cause everyone else was like a thin white waif of a woman. Yeah. And I was like, I identified as the Mucinex man. I was like, all right, ladies, here we are. You know, like, and that was me just being like, I'll be. So I thought I was very masculine and androgynous until like 2010. Oh, wow. And then finally like had like a a come to Jesus moment where I was like, oh, I guess I'm feminine and people don't see me as manly. Yeah, I see you as very feminine. I... It's a story that I love to tell because it's so absurd. I was walking down the street in Oakland and there was like an old man, like a block down walking towards me. And he was, he went, young man, young man. (laughs) And I looked and there was no one else. And as we got closer, I was like, oh, are you talking to me? And he went, no, are you a young man? (laughs) And he was so incredulous that I was like, maybe I'm not. And uh, I have no idea why, like, who he was talking to, but I do answer to sir. <laughs> so that's the day you learned you weren't a young man. Yeah. Wow. It, it was the fact that he was like, you're so stupid <laughs> for even thinking that I could be talking to you. <laughs> so what was your parents' reaction when you switched? I kind of broke it to them gently where I was like, just so you know... In the future, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to quit my big law firm job and maybe do a less intense law job and try to be a comedian. And then I kind of started. And then you were like, honk, honk. And (laughs) yes. Drove off in your. (laughs) I perfected that. Oh, wow. Yeah, thank you. Wait, do that one more time. (laughs) Wait. (laughs) (laughs) It's too good. (laughs) I did sit down with my parents and tell them, I know that if I'm on my deathbed when I'm 80, I'm going to regret never trying. And so your parents were just like, okay? I mean, I think I made their potential pushback so much bigger in my head. And I was like, I can't. I'm going to disappoint them so much and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes I would like mention it to my mom and my mom would be like, yes, that will be a great thing to do when you retire. (laughs) Or like that's a nice little hobby on the side. Exactly. A side, you know, gig. And uh, eventually just I was always going to just still be a full time lawyer and do it on the side. And then when the pandemic happened, I was like, what are we doing? Yeah. Like everyone's dropping like flies left and right. And I'm already regretting not starting sooner. And then that's when I like really dove into it and then quit my 
big law firm job and moved to LA for my the, for the free rent, not because I thought I was ready for <laughs> the most competitive, intense you are, scene though. of comedy. Thank you. Um, for anyone who's <laughs> never seen Christy perform, she is killing it in the scene right now, and she's moving faster than anyone. Well, maybe not anyone. There's some people who move lightning You fast, know I'm but... going to edit this out. <laughs> okay. 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 It's time to get to our wild questions that okay. I have on my phone because my printer wasn't working. Um, the first one is, Cleopatra viewed herself as a living goddess. Tell us about a time you felt almost supernatural or godlike, or tell us about a weird, random, or useless talent. So we already just discussed one of my useless talents, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Was that the one you had prepared for this? Um, no. The other, the useless <laughs> talent that I have that I wish, that I'm not the only person that has this talent. Actually, Rachel Dratch did a, like, game on Jimmy Fallon with it once. But basically, I can identify what song is playing based on, like, the first few milliseconds of a song. And we can't, there's no way to I was going to say, that. should we test this out? <laughs> I don't know how to do it. I can't. And you don't the have thought, the capacity. But like, if I hear like half of a measure of a song, I will know what Immediately it is. know. Yeah. Um, how often does this skill come in useful to you? Uh, I use it about as often as you use your sandwich. My sandwich skill one time. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty good whistler. Okay. Um, I can't whistle. So that's huge. You can't whistle? No. Nope. Prove it. I'm not, <laughs> no. Oh, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> Okay, so we have another question, which is Cleopatra wasn't actually Egyptian, but she embraced many Egyptian customs. What is a super American custom you've adopted or part of your culture that you've tried to shake but can't? <laughs> okay, so I would say the super American custom I adopted was basing my entire worth on productivity. <laughs> <laughs> that is very... Um, so American of yeah. me. Yeah, I think... In general, I i mean, I haven't been to Egypt for several years, but I recall needing to take my watch off so that I didn't have an acute sense of every passing minute. Wow. Because I just, at the pace of life is just so different. And there isn't this like, everyone needs to hustle at all moments and it's productivity and it's burnout and it's hustle. And like, that is so how I was raised and how kind of, everyone needs to be in America. Yeah. And there there just wasn't that same sensibility. There's like a different natural rhythm of life that was, and it's natural, but because it's natural to humanity, it's unnatural to me, to Americans, to people yeah. who are like, well, we said we'd be here at one and it's five, you know? I bet in that culture, you probably sleep so much better. Yeah, totally. I, I think the most like regulated my nervous system ever was was when I was in Egypt probably yeah because I'm I was so just sure. like so in the moment of like it doesn't matter what we're doing later it doesn't like you show up when you show up uh. you know and like nobody holds it against you and I was holding it against everyone for a while and then I was like you just need to let go of this Christy yeah. like we said we'd get to the beach at one and then the rest of my family shows up at like 3 or 4 p.m. And I'm like, ah, you know, and it's like, this is how it is. You, yeah. uh, you need to adapt. You need to loosen your bone um, in, in your hair. Does that make sense? Loosen your bone? Yeah. <laughs> loosen your bone. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, actually, the full quote is loosen your bone, Wilma. 
So oh. like the bone in your hair. Um, but oh, I see. That's from Jen Sincero. Uh, but I just realized that loosen your bone is not uh, obviously <laughs> what it is. So yeah, adopting a less intense pace of life so that would probably be one thing I would like to shed I think you would need everyone around you to shed it I think the problem is here we all fuel this culture it's we we bring it upon ourselves so if it would have to be such a societal shift and I just don't know if I see that happening for American kind I think also an Egyptian custom that I, like, haven't been able to shake. Probably, I guess, a little bit of superstition about the evil eye. Oh. Yeah. Like, my mom would, like, claims that she doesn't believe in it, but then every now and then she'll be like, I think somebody gave us the eye. <laughs> How many of those eyes do you have in your house at home? Not actually that many. Yeah. We have more crucifixes than we oh, do eyes. Okay. Yeah. So... But I'm, I'm wondering if maybe I should do, like, a hybrid with, like, a crucifix and then in the middle an eye. Oh, I bet they sell that. <laughs> or do the powers cancel each other out because one's superstition and one's Christianity. I mean, uh, Eastern Christianity is is actually very mystic. There's, like, a yeah, lot of mysticism. Say. And isn't, it's a lot more woo-woo than Western Christianity, for sure. Well, isn't religion and superstition kind of the same? The official party line is no. <laughs> okay. I keep hiding my phone like they're, they don't know <laughs> that I have one. Yeah, don't let um, them know. Okay, Cleopatra was the queen of luxury. What's the one bougie thing you never skimp on? I am a huge fan of the fancy olive oil, butter, and salt. Ooh, I'm okay. like all about, we established last episode that I will drink the $5 bottle of wine or whatever, <laughs> but I... Uh, do not separate me from my Maldon flaky sea salt. Okay. Is that like the like thick sea salt? Yeah. Yeah, that they've like put on cookies. Finishing salt, Ooh. yeah. Oh, a finishing salt. Yes. I see. So I, I love And what's that the type. olive oil? Just any really good okay. quality. You know, the, the very high quality ones are just for drizzle, drizzling also like finishing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You I, love I, a I mean, finisher. you don't want to cook with them. Yeah. And good butter. I love that Kerrygold Irish butter. People love Kerrygold. I got to get in on this. And, uh, or just any other type of like European cultured butter. Okay. Um, everyone always tells me my butter is trash because I just get the like regular cheap one from mm -hmm. Trader Joe's. I feel like Kerrygold should now sponsor this <laughs> <laughs> podcast. Kerrygold doesn't need sponsorship. They're too uh, excellent and famous. Uh, Word of mouth butter. We'll find like a new startup cultured butter to sponsor this. Okay. Okay. Cleopatra and Mark Antony had their own drinking club called Inimitable Livers, where they'd go on wine binges and have feasts. Tell us about a club you started or belong to. Alternatively, tell us about your own drinking story. So as an attorney and then also as a comedian, I've <laughs> drank many drinks. <laughs> that feels right. It was just like the thing that was so surprising when you're at a law firm is like people will just have their bottles of whiskey and scotch like displayed with glasses. It was not frowned upon to be drinking like after a certain point. Like Madman. Yeah, it was. It was basically. And... I, you know, people would be like, oh, let's just like have a quick, so I would definitely like, oh, it's six o'clock. We're all going to like go in so-and-so's office and have a splash of scotch. And that was very strange. But I, the drinking story that I wanted to share was that my, one of my good friends from law school, Amanda, 
uh, had her wedding on a vineyard. And there was, the wine was flowing. And apparently, I don't recall this, but at some point, uh, one of our friends took a glass of wine out of my hand and replaced it with a wine glass of water because they wanted me to hydrate. And I said, you just reversed Jesus'd me. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, blackout me was uh, pretty clever. (laughs) And now it's time for Dig Deep, our lightning question round. Okay, Elizabeth Taylor famously portrayed Cleopatra. If your life were a crossover episode of two TV shows or films, what would they be and who would play you? So I feel like if right now my life is a crossover episode between Suits and (laughs) Crashing, the um, not the Phoebe Waller-Bridge one, the Pete Holmes one, because Suits is about lawyers and it's a hilariously unrealistic depiction of what it's like to work at a big high-powered law firm and Crashing is about, you know, a up-and-coming stand-up comedian who is just stumbling his way through the scene and that's kind of how I feel. I guess like looks wise I get compared the most to Alana Glazer so I guess she would have to play me. Oh yeah that makes perfect Um, sense. But energetically if I could be played by anyone it would be Stanley Tucci. Oh (laughs) oh it's like a crossover actor um why don't we have both of them play? I mean, you? I Stanley Tucci is one of my favorite actors. His whole vibe is just—it's immaculate. Yes, yeah. And then uh, we have one final question. I know. Get into it. Uh, Cleopatra left a storied legacy as a queen, scientist, and scholar. What do you want your legacy to be? What would you like to be remembered for the most? Alternatively, what would your epitaph read? Okay, so I have a joke answer and a serious answer. The joke answer, when I was in, uh, like, high school, I loved Monty Python, of course. Okay. And I jokingly thought it would be funny to have a headstone that read, Tis but a scratch. (laughs) Because, you know, it obviously is a reference to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But it's also a hilarious exaggeration. It's also a literal scratch chiseled on a headstone. But it's also kind of a metaphor for what I think life is, you know. Sounds I, like a tattoo. I know. I've, I yeah. don't have any tattoos. Me so neither. So this would be, I, and that is more than a scratch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I feel like the older I get, the more I am stepping into the notion that Jim Carrey has said that the, the most powerful currency you have is your effect on other people. Oof. Yeah. And so I guess just I want to be remembered for making people laugh and feel better about themselves, people feeling understood and not judged, and just being like a little bit of a a light and um, ointment on the wound that is this festering capitalist existence (laughs) a little bit. And yeah, that's that's what I would want to be remembered for. Cool. I think about it a lot because obviously my dad passed away last year. um, And I think it, when I'm in a good place, I'm able to kind of put in perspective whatever it is that I'm going through, which is usually a very unnecessary narrative about my anxiety or my inadequacy. (laughs) And so I, I think it does 
offer a lot of perspective about how little most of this matters. I guess that's a good way to use a fear of death as a way of rationalizing how little all this stuff matters. That's, I mean, that kind of feels like a positive. Yeah. Yeah. It's also like a very, you know, stoic concept, memento mori, the remembrance of death. It kind of just keeps you, and like at, uh, the pendulum swings the other way to me for me where I'm like, all right, let's, I want to die. Like, <laughs> I'm not like, oh, this won't matter when I die. I'm like, let's speed it up a little. Let's get there. I'm so over this. Uh, but yeah. Um, just because I've never actually had this conversation with you, what do you think the afterlife is? Oh boy. I mean, I do believe, you know, that energy is neither created nor destroyed. Mm. Um, so I do believe that there is like an essence that we all have as souls, pure consciousness, whatever you want to call it, that doesn't dissipate in the universe. Mm. Um, it's like in the good place. When, yes. Yeah. And also, but, and also the movie Soul, the Pixar movie oh, Soul. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. Such a good movie. It was so beautiful. Yeah. What, what do you think? What do you think happens when we die? Um, I'm sorry, we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think I'm of the philosophy, it's whatever it was before we were born. Like, do you remember what it was like before you were born? No, I think mm. I think it's the same thing. But I do think you leave an energy behind. Um, but I just, I think for me, I, I see it as like the big sleep. And as an insomniac, it actually sounds really, <laughs> <laughs> like, like finally, really great. some shut eye. Yeah, yeah. and this melatonin we call life <laughs> yeah. as we just slowly drift off um I feel like we're spitting this podcast as like a like a pro-death podcast and I want to make it very here clear at Contra, we're very pro-death you're death. not pro-death we all, well we are pro-death in the sense that we believe that death will happen you know yeah and I um mean, that it's uh there's um it's not all there, there can be like celebration in it yeah do you want something wild I found out last week I was talking to my mom about some sort of loose ends we have to tie with my dad's yeah. passing. And she casually mentioned that she bought burial plots for me and my siblings. And she, I was like, what? <laughs> did, she, did she, is it your dad buried in a burial plot? Yeah. And it's the same it's one? It's the same cemetery. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's kind of nice that that's like taken care of. Right. But it, she was like, yeah, you know, you'll you'll go ahead and, you know, when that happens and and she was talking about how like the price of burial plots is skyrocketing <laughs> I mean. and i'm just like oh god just throw me <laughs> into the ocean i want to die at sea that's how i feel i just want to be like put in a dumpster like in my like garage in my like apartment garage dumpster. i mean wh why not just be cremated uh yeah that too i just want to make it like as easy as possible for everyone around around me i was telling you about how i was on the phone with the cemetery people about the headstone and they were really upselling me on I mean you got to make your money somehow I mean it's it's insane to me that there's just nothing safe from the claws of capitalism that were <laughs> like make sure you uh let them know like I wanted oh. to just order the headstone online and they're like no 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 you gotta come in you gotta pick the this and pick the that because it's gonna represent your father it is so wild that when someone dies it's like you're grieving but you also have to deal with all these right there's so much legal and the organization and it just it's and i'm i'm pretty good at compartmentalizing 
logistics and emotions. I think that's probably one of the good things I learned as a lawyer. And so I, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like when I was coffin shopping, um, shopping. Oh no, that's stupid. Uh, <laughs> Women be shopping. Coffin. <laughs> Women be shopping for coffins. coffins. <laughs> I was like, I found out that Costco sells coffins. Yeah, I've heard. And we were joking that uh, we were going to just buy our whole family's coffins <laughs> in bulk. Little did I know a year later I'd find out that my mama bought our burial plots in bulk. Um, Listen, that's like that's like buying like property in LA in like the 1980s. Like it's just <laughs> such a good investment. I'm I'm serious. I wanted to be like, mom, can I live there now? Uh, <laughs> yeah. rent is very expensive. Uh, you know, like those people who live in storage units. Yeah. but I'll take it a step yeah. further and just live in a little like Burn a tiny box. house, yeah. but it'll be on the burial ground. Exactly. So dark. Or you could like Airbnb it out, make some money. <laughs> Yeah, Airbnb, whatever the opposite of air, it's Earth BNB. <laughs> so stupid. Oh my God. But yeah, there was a moment where I was like, do we ask if Costco price matches? Is that like, do I need to do this? I had to decide how Arab I was going to be. There's just, there is a lot of funny, funny, bizarre stuff about death, and it is surreal. And I think. I think that is kind of a good thing to keep in mind always because yeah. it's really hard to get mad about something that you know is not going to matter in the long term. But I also struggle with I, I don't want to say that nothing matters because then then it's like, what do you what are we doing? Yeah, here? Yeah, you know, you, you have to kind yeah. of toe the line between making meaning while you're alive, but not just resigning because you know you're going to die. That's called clinical depression. <laughs> wow, this got really um, deep. I like that you were like, oh, so we're going to wrap this up. And I'm like, let's talk about the afterlife. <laughs> this has been Cleopatra with Lynn Molly and Christy Bana. Please like and subscribe and continue to support us. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. See you soon. Bye. Bye.